0: Well, turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to John chapter 14. We're going to be exploring John 14 verses 1 through 14 today. This is a familiar passage to many of you. You'd, you'll hear things like, Let not your heart be troubled, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's familiar to many of us. It's a passage that takes place in the context of the upper room where we were at last week, where Jesus had just finished informing his disciples, telling them that. He was about to leave them. He was about to go to the cross and he would rise again, but he would also ascend into heaven and Jesus would no longer be with them there in the flesh. And the disciples were worried about this. They were more than concerned about what life was going to look like with Jesus no longer being on the scene. And so their hearts are saddened, they're grieved, they're anxious, they're insecure. Ever felt like that? Well... That's where the disciples are at. So let's read the passage now. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says this to the disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself Believe in me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. When I was 15 years old, I got my much-coveted driver's permit. It was just on the edge of freedom for me. And so my parents knew that, and they wanted me to know how to drive when I actually got my license. And so wherever we went together as a family, they made me drive there. So there I was, 15 years old, driving in Los Angeles, California, the most traffic-congested city in the United States of America, down Interstate 5, and my dad is sitting next to me in the passenger seat, as cool as a cucumber, not a care in the world, just as laid back as he could be. And my mom is in the back, and she's tapping my shoulder, telling me to watch out for the furniture truck in the number two lane, and to slow down, and to keep a safe following distance. And then she's Hitting my dad on his shoulder, telling him to stop dozing off so that I wouldn't crash into anything. And my little sister is in the back seat and she's just going, ah! She's freaked out by the whole thing. It was like a scene from Family Vacation. It was like the Griswolds were right there in the car. It was just unreal. Everybody was troubled. I was troubled. I was troubled that my dad was not troubled and that my mom was. It was a scary situation. You know what it's like to be troubled. Everybody knows what it's like to be troubled, to be insecure. In fact, if I asked everybody in here who has felt insecure at some point this week to stand up and go to this side of the room and everybody who had not experienced any insecurity to stand up and go to that side of the room, we would have the insecure people over here and all of the liars over here. (laughs) Because everybody experiences that regularly. It's part of being human. It's part of what it's like to be a fallen human being who lives in a fallen world. And it's in that context that Jesus comes to us and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. I read that and I see reality in my life and in your life and in the disciples' life and I think, how in the world can you even say that? How can you say, do not let your hearts be troubled? Do not let your hearts be troubled is something that you say to someone who has no bills, who has no relational problems, who has no problems at work, and I don't know anybody who doesn't have those problems. Everybody has those issues in our life. Don't you hate it when someone comes to you and says, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Don't worry. That bothers me. It's, it, it's like, how are you supposed to respond? Wow, it never occurred to me that I shouldn't worry. just stop worrying now and then you just go flip the worry switch and then all of a sudden all your cares go away that's not how it works but jesus says let not your heart be troubled let not your heart be troubled is not helpful if there is no alternative to our fears if there's no alternative to our fears it's not helpful if there's no reason why we shouldn't worry it's not helpful And yet Jesus seems to be trying to get us to see that he is the answer to our fears. He is the answer to our insecurity. He is the answer to our troubled hearts. How's that for a nice churchy answer for you? Jesus is the answer to that. Let me see if I can help dissect this a little bit so we can understand where Jesus is going and understand that he's not just slapping a little band-aid over big issues in our life. One thing I think that Jesus shows us here, and I think the one thing that we can see from this passage, is that it's not exactly a scandal that we have fears. It's, it's not something that is at all surprising. Jesus doesn't just come and throw these people under the bus because they're a little bit afraid of what their life is going to look like once Jesus ascends into heaven because the disciples had banked their entire lives on Jesus fulfilling his promises. Their whole lives were built upon that. They had followed Jesus wherever he went. When Jesus got kicked out of wherever he was, they got kicked out along with him. Their reputation was at stake. And so things were not looking particularly good at this particular moment in the life of Jesus Christ, and the life of these disciples. Because Jesus has basically told them that he is about to go to the cross. And in less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be on the cross and he's going to be dead. And he's going to be taken off the cross and wrapped in burial clothes and put into a tomb and his body is going to be cold. And at that moment of their lives, their confidence, their insecurity is going to be aroused to the surface. It's going to come up They're going to experience that. Things are not going to appear to be okay. The death of Jesus Christ is going to turn their life into a colossal mess, so they think. And So even though Jesus has the most reason to be troubled of anybody in this room, I mean, he's the one that's going to the cross. He's the one that has more reason to be troubled than anybody. And we see, as we saw in John 12 a few weeks ago, that Jesus' heart actually was troubled by this despite the fact that he is the one that ought to have the troubled soul, he is coming to his disciples, his followers, and he's bringing them comfort in the midst of their insecurity. See, Jesus never loses trust in his Father. And he never excuses a lack of trust in us. But at the same time, Jesus understands it. He enters into the context of our insecurity. He knows why they're afraid. He knows why they're insecure. And he comes to them in the midst of all that and he comforts their afflicted hearts. He comforts their fears. And he comes and he brings them solace in that particular time. It's a a solace to me. It's a great comfort to me. And I hope it is to you as well. To know that this Jesus Christ who we come together to worship and we are called to worship in the ordinary aspects of our life is the Jesus Christ who comes to us in the midst of our fears and anxieties and insecurities to bring us comfort, to bring us solace. He doesn't sugarcoat reality. Jesus doesn't just come to us and say, everything's going to be okay. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He deals with it. To, to go to someone whose child or spouse or friend or parent is in the hospital with something serious and to just say, everything's going to be okay, that's not particularly helpful counsel. Because you don't know that everything is going to be okay. You don't know that. And that's not what Jesus says. Things are not going to appear okay when Jesus is on the cross and in the tomb. So how does he bring comfort to these guys without giving a a surface-y type of answer. He comes to him and he says this. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. That's what Jesus does. He understands their fear and he has compassion, but he understands that at the root of their fears and at the root of their insecurities is unbelief. That's the root of our fears. It's unbelief. That's the source of their insecurity. That Jesus isn't going to fulfill his promises. That even in the midst of apparent hopelessness, they believe that Jesus will not make good on what he said that he will do. And that is so true in us in so many respects. Our insecurity is fueled, is fueled by some kind of belief in us. Some kind of belief that Jesus is checked out of our lives. That, that he's this unmoved mover. He's, he's just retired. Our fears and our insecurities are complex things. There's so much personal history, personal baggage, expectations we have for our lives, all of that that plays into the ingredients of how these insecurities come to the the surface. But at the bottom of that, you need to see, I need to see, Jesus wants us to see, that at the bottom of those insecurities is unbelief. It's a lack of faith in Him. It's a lack of trust in Him. And who Jesus is, what he's promised for you, what he's accomplished for you. Lack of trust that Christ is sovereign over all of the little nitty-gritty details of your life. Fear that the apocalypse is going to happen in your life if something doesn't go the way in which you plan for it to go. Lack of trust that God is in control of all things. That's the root of our fears. These disciples thought that Jesus was going to leave them high and dry. That was their fear. And they would be left alone, almost as orphans, powerless, afraid. And we feel like that. That's oftentimes the reality of our lives. And a lot of that is because we feel as if we are alone in this world. We feel as if Jesus has abandoned us. And so what we do in exchange for that is we put our faith in ourselves. We put our faith in our abilities. We put our faith in our spouse or our kids or our friends or our colleagues or something else. And we've gotten far down the road. We're cynical with all that because we've seen the lack of reliability that other people have and we've seen the lack of reliability in our own life and we've tried to stay positive for no particular reason at all and we've found that our circumstances don't change and nothing's worse. But look at what Jesus promises here. Look at what he doesn't promise. He doesn't promise that your circumstances just change by having more faith. It's called the prosperity gospel. That's the view that our circumstances are going to change. We're going to become healthier and wealthier and wiser if we just have a little bit more faith. Jesus doesn't promise that. That's not the ultimate promise. But he gives us an ultimate promise. And the ultimate promise to alleviate our fears in this life is that as we believe in Him, when we get to the end of the road and all things are said and done, that we are finally, finally going to get to go home. That there is a home for us. I wonder what you think about your home. What is it that makes your house not just a house but a home? Every time I go home to visit my family, my parents have lived in the same house since I was five. And it's still home to me. I have so many memories there of the Christmases that we shared, of the 16th birthday party I had in the backyard when I turned 16, of the place on the front lawn where my girlfriend dumped me, (laughs) of playing catch with my dad in the backyard, All of us have memories of home. And they are places where memories and experiences are branded into us and they're part of what makes you, you. That's what home is. And that's the case, whether your home was the single most dysfunctional place that you could ever begin to imagine or whether your home was a Brady Bunch experience for you. Even if it was what you think to be a wonderful household, there's still something in you that's longing for a better home, isn't there? We still long for a better home because even in those good households, there are times of feeling lonely, of feeling misunderstood, of feeling anxious, of feelings of burden. If that's your experience, then welcome to the club. It's true of everybody. And what Jesus is saying here is that I have purchased you a home where you're going to belong. Where there's safety, acceptance, love. Despite whatever the world says about you, despite what your experience is, you're going to be able to walk in the door one day at the end of the aisle of your life and you're finally going to be home. That's what Jesus thought that the disciples needed to hear, above all the other things that he could have told them, he thought that the disciples needed to hear in their most crushing, anxious, insecure hour, more than anything else, that he has prepared a room for them in his father's house. That they have a home and they're going to be perfectly embraced there. Jesus, of course, is talking about heaven, isn't he? That's what he's talking about here. He wants them, and he wants you and I to believe that Jesus will not only justify us before the Father, but he also wants us to live and believe as if heaven is our home, as if it's actually the place where we belong. And when we start to believe that our true place of belonging, our true residence is not here, but that it's actually in heaven, it changes everything. It enables us to divorce ourselves from this love affair that we have with the world. To to detach ourselves from that and to stop living vicariously through all of our hobbies and all of our junk and from shopping and all of this stuff in life and to find contentment, to find comfort in Jesus and who he is and his power and his grace and his wisdom for our lives. And when we do that, when we understand that he has done that and that he's prepared for us a home, we start to live in in such a way that we know that he's never going to foreclose on us. He's never going to abandon us. He's always there. He's always working in and through our lives. A lot of people will say, and I've heard this said before many times, that so and so is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. It's this mentality that if we, if we have a mind about heaven, if we have a longing for heaven, for our eternal home, that somehow we're going to be of no value in this world. We don't really care about this world, about transforming it, about seeing it renewed, about good things happening. But I want to suggest to you that nothing could be further from the truth. And actually having this longing for home and knowing that the price of this home was purchased at the cost of Jesus' own life is what equips us to live lives of renewal and lives of change in this particular life. Why has it been Christians who've established so many hospitals all over the world? Christians who've gone into the third world to establish schools to educate children? It's because we know that we have a home, but it's come to us because we've received it by mercy, not by something we've earned for ourselves. Why would our friend Kurt Moore go to some place that seems totally God-forsaken, like Haiti, to bring disaster relief? He's doing it because he's showing it it's not God-forsaken after all. Why would so many people Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come down to this coast to help us in our hour of need in our time of need. It's because they have been received they have received so much mercy. They have received a mercy that has purchased for them an eternal home. And so the overflow of that is that they go out and they serve other people. And that's what we do. That's what we do in the gospel. That's what a person who's heavenly-minded does. We find ourselves as we give ourselves away. We have received mercy, and so the overflow of that is that we give mercy. We love each other. We serve each other. We lay down our lives for one another. We practice hospitality, and we do that not only for one another inside of this church, but we do it to our neighbors. We love our neighbors, and we go outward. That's what heaven propels you to do. That's what the gospel propels you to do. But here's something else you need to know. and This is important. This is important. No matter how long you've been in the church, no matter what great things you do for other people, you can miss heaven entirely if you don't know the way to get there. Completely. You're going to miss heaven if you don't know the way to get there. And so Jesus says here in this passage that he is the way. Not a way. He is the way. What a wildly exclusive, narrow thing to say. It seems like every day in our culture, it becomes increasingly egalitarian and increasingly autonomous. We are the captain of our fates and the master of our souls. We are the authority of our lives. And there's this increasingly visceral hatred towards some kind of an exclusive claim like Jesus makes that he is the only way to heaven. Because it's our nature, it's our inherent issue in our life that the only authority that we really want to submit to is our own. After Sunday school this morning, Ron Threadgill was saying that something came out of the 60s where you don't trust anybody over the age of 30. I think that we're now at the stage of our history where we don't trust anybody other than ourselves. It's not even an age issue anymore. But Jesus is saying that it doesn't change the fact, whatever we believe about this, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus does not claim to be one of several ways to the Father. He claims to be the only way to the Father. He is the way. There's no other way. Any other road you go down is going to lead you straight to condemnation. It's going to lead you off of the cliff. It's going to lead you to curse rather than a blessing. We know it so well. We know this passage so well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That in many respects, first, it's lost its shock value. But this is a shocking thing to say. It's a shocking thing for the world to hear because it appears so wildly arrogant. Anybody in our world today, if they said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, we would pass them off as being a crazy, arrogant fool and just ignore them, or we would try to shut them up. That's what we would try to do. And so the cultured despisers of the day do the same thing. They say that Jesus was a crazy, arrogant manipulator, and his followers are superstitious followers whose belief in heaven is about as valid and reasonable as it is for us to believe in things like leprechauns and unicorns. I will show you the book at Books of Million that says that. That's what they believe. And so to build a life and a culture upon something as superstitious as what Jesus said here it seemed to be wildly foolish at best and dangerous at worst. Others in our midst, they're just going to say that Jesus just wants us to be happy. And so we can know that when we get to the other side, it's all going to work out well if we live a good life, whatever it means to live a good life. So Christian, I ask you, how do you respond to that? Because that's the world in which we live. How do we respond to that? we respond to it by looking at what Jesus said and looking at what he did. What did Jesus say and what did he do? When we look at Jesus's life, we see that his life was a life of embodied truth. He was constantly, always, perfectly living with consistency to the Father's will. He lived inconsistencies Inconsistently with the Pharisees' desires, but he lived consistently with the Father's will. He loved the Father. He says in his word, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And that becomes apparent as you see the life of Jesus Christ. Everything that he taught it was entirely in line with the Father, with what we see in the Old Covenant. He had an integrity to his life that was unsurpassed by anybody. And so you're very rarely ever going to hear anybody say that Jesus' life was less than a life of integrity, that his life was somewhat scandalous. What it boils down to is his words, to his teaching. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it challenges us. Because if Jesus' words and teaching are truth, and they are the only truth, then our lives must be conformed to that. Then our lives must be conformed to his his truth. And when our truth that we autonomously create for ourselves, or that's culturally derived, intersects with his truth, then someone's truth has to win out. We have to discover what the truth really is. We ask, like Pilate, what is truth? And when we discover that Jesus is the truth, that his words are true. It's either going to cause us to bow the knee to Him or reject Him altogether. Those are the only two choices you have in life. Not to just add a scoop of Him to your life, but to embrace all of who He is and what He's about. Jesus' words and life are not any less true because of our refusal to believe them. So how do we know that they're true? How do we know that Jesus' words are true? We look at what Jesus did. We look at the miracles He performed. Where he makes something out of nothing, where he brings hope where there was total hopelessness, how he brings a little 12 year old girl back to life, how he raises Lazarus from the dead, and how all of that points to his resurrection that he was dead, his body was cold, and on the third day he rose again. See what the resurrection tells you? and what the disciples are going to learn in just a few short days, is that if the resurrection didn't happen, if it did not happen, then we shouldn't even bother with what Jesus had to say. We shouldn't bother with what he taught. It's just a time-conditioned truth for a group of primitive Israelites who lived 2,000 years ago. He's just another interesting religious figure. But if Jesus rose from the grave, and the evidence is abundant that he did, if he rose from the grave, then everything he says matters. Everything that he says is truth and we must bow the knee to that. We must embrace it because his resurrection validated his claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. That life is in him. And that's what sets Christianity apart from everything else. That he provides in the gospel a real solution to our ultimate problem. That he is going to provide a solution that is going to bring us home to a place of belonging. He's going to bring us there. All of us have issues in our life. All of us have problems in our life. All of us have insecurities in our life. But there was a time, you need to remember this, that there was a time when none of those insecurities and none of those problems and none of the effects of sin were alive and well in this world. It didn't last very long. When our first parents fell, we inherited their sin, and we inherited their insecurity. And every single person inside and outside the church has been fighting to get back to that garden experience ever since. And we've been trying to get back there by defining our own notions of truth, by seeking life, by seeking vitality in anything and everything other than God. It's our nature to do that, and all of us do it. All of us do it. But Jesus is saying, if you want life, then here it is. Come to me. Yes, it's exclusive. Yes, there's only one way. Yes, the gate is narrow. But it is open to anybody, anybody who will believe, who will bow the knee, who will enter through the way, who will embrace Jesus Christ, who will say, Jesus was troubled so that I would not have to be. Jesus was troubled for me in order that my troubles might one day be washed away and that I might get to go home. The cry of Jesus on the cross where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry of a troubled heart. That's the cry of a man who took on the unmitigated wrath of his father in the place of his children. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He did it so that we might live. He did it so that we might come home through the way, through the one who is the truth, through the one who is the life. These disciples who heard these words from Jesus Christ, do not let your hearts be troubled, in a few days would see Jesus rise from the dead. And when they saw Jesus rise from the dead, it changed everything. And moved them from cowardliness to boldness. And moved them from insecurity to Christ saturated, spirit filled security, hope, confidence not in themselves, but confidence in Christ and in the power of His Spirit. These disciples would continue to go on throughout the course of their life after Jesus' sins and the Holy Spirit comes, and their circumstances would get no better. They would, in fact, get worse. But in the midst of their circumstances, they live so God-focused. They live so much with the hope that this is not their home, but that heaven is their home, that all of them, except for John, ends up getting martyred for their faith. Some are beheaded. Some are sawed in two. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is crucified for him. Only not right side up, but upside down. Because he could not be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Their lives are totally changed by the fact that this life is not their home. And they have an eternal home that they can rest in and know that they will be welcomed and will be perfectly secure. Knowing that you have that perfect home changes everything. Knowing that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life changes everything in this life and forevermore. And as we go throughout the course of this week, may God bring that to bear upon our lives in a way that we've never seen it before. Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Jesus, there's a familiarity to these words that makes us pass them off as a ho-hum experience, as something that we say, yeah, we've heard that before. I know that. I believe that. But how little has it actually integrated into our lives and changed our souls and changed the way in which we live and believe. And so I pray in my life, and I pray in the life of these dear people, that that would happen this week. That we would be a congregation of people who meditate on the fact that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That you have prepared for us a room in our Father's house where we will be secure forevermore. Let that bring us great security as we go out and live for you in the course of this week. Do that in our lives. We ask this in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.